Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We have a great new scientist subscription offer this week. Get your first 12-week subscription for half price, plus get a free New Scientist Moon Jigsaw Puzzle. Go to NewScientist.com slash puzzle to subscribe and get your bargain. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the show that brings you all the top news in science and, as we'll see, the bottom news in science. I'm Rowan Hooper, the podcast editor. And I'm Tiffany O'Callaghan, New Scientist Features Editor. Welcome to the show. This week, we're also joined by New Scientist reporters Michael LePage and Adam Vaughan. Welcome both. Hello. Coming up on the show today, we're exploring how vaccines are being distributed around the world and what needs to be done about that. And we look at why China is now poised to explore the solar system. We also look at what happens when a particular species of mouse is bereaved. And we have a delicate story about uh, a breathable liquid. But before we start, time to tell you about an amazing one-day virtual event coming up on Saturday the 26th of June. Yeah, the topic is the small matter of the future of healthcare. This is for everyone who cares about maintaining a healthy body and mind. Join us for a day of inspiring talks and discussion with scientists at the forefront of research and experts on healthy living, covering everything from retraining the immune system to boosting your brain and preventing disease. There are three stages of incredible talks, discussion and debate with audience questions, giving you the opportunity to take part and shape the conversation. There's also an early bird discount if you book now. Go to newscientist.com slash future healthcare to find out more. Now, we start this week with news about a greenhouse gas that doesn't get as much airtime as carbon dioxide. Methane levels in the atmosphere spiked in 2020, and that's concerning because although it is quite short-lived as a gas, its warming effect is 28 times more potent than carbon dioxide. So a little methane does a lot of warming. Adam, you've been looking into where this methane is coming from. Yeah, so there's three sources of methane in the atmosphere. There's number one is the thermogenic stuff. That's the burning of methane locked up in fossil fuels. Secondly is the pyrogenic ones. That's burning wood, basically. And thirdly is the biogenic stuff. So that means when it's coming from microbes, usually in wetlands, rice paddies, livestock, permafrost, and also our landfill sites. And as you say, Tiff, it is a concern because it's such a potent greenhouse gas. It's like 28 times more powerful over 100 years than CO2. And although we really must cut those CO2 emissions as well, they are the main game in town. In some ways, cutting methane emissions 
first is the best way to stay under 1.5 degrees. So which of the sources that you mentioned is the main source of, of this stuff? So in terms of the growth in recent years, the, I was talking to Sylvia Michelle at the University of Colorado, and she showed me around her lab and her team there. And they were, they were looking at air flasks, which have which are from samples of air from all around the world. And, and they can use um, these machines, these um, these isotopic mass spectrometers. And they, they can see from those that they've got less carbon-13 and more carbon-12. These are a, a stable isotope, unlike the sort of ones that we use to measure the age of stuff. Anyway, the, the point of the ratio of those two is that that suggests that the growth is coming from microbial sources. So that points to wetlands and agriculture. Michelle said to me, Fossil fuels are definitely part of the picture, but it's hard to explain our data without having an increase in biogenic methane. Spectrometers, unfortunately, can't tell us whether the source is more cows or, or wetlands behaving differently, though. And what about permafrost? Because, uh, you know, I keep hearing all this concern about uh, methane that's trapped in that slush, frozen slush called clathrates uh, under the permafrost. And some people think that the increase we're seeing is a in atmospheric methane is an indicator of you know instability in that clathrate in the frozen methane. The, the main concern there is just the volumes of it and the idea that it might suddenly come start to come out in greater right. greater amounts. But if you look at what's actually what actually appears to be coming out at the moment and ending up in the atmosphere, everything is pointing to the tropics and wetlands in the tropics. And what role do livestock play? Do we know? Well, the researchers I was talking to um, say that cows clearly are part of the picture, but it it does seem from sort of surveys by, from the air and by satellite that probably overall the balance is, is coming from wetlands. And that the fear is, is that that's because the wetlands are starting to get, because the world's getting warmer and we did have a particularly warm year last year, that is what's causing those wetlands to release more methane. So given we might be getting towards knowing where most of it's coming from, does that point to a solution? Well, yeah, I mean, this is the good thing about methane is that because it's short lived, we can make a really big impact in the near term, whereas even if we cut all our CO2 emissions today to zero, we wouldn't see the effects for decades. So there's been a couple of recent papers on this. One found that a 45% cut in methane emissions by 2030, which is admittedly a big cut, would avoid nearly 0.3 degrees of warming by the 2040s. Um, Another recent paper concluded that pursuing only the easiest methane cuts, and by that I mean the ones that effectively cost neutral because something like an oil and gas company captures the gas and sells it instead, those cuts could avoid a quarter degree of warming by the end of the century, and that is a huge amount in the context of climate change. In total, you know, if you look at where, where to target, you know, about in terms of anthropogenic methane emissions, about half come from the fossil fuel industry, so that's got to be a big target. And the other half is from agriculture and uh, waste sites, including those landfills. And that reminds me, what did you two, um, you and Michael, make of the IEA, the International Energy Agency's report this week, showing that their, their report is amazing, showing that all oil and gas exploration and development needs to stop this year if we've got any hope of uh, raiding in dangerous climate change? I suspect we'll come back to look at that IEA report, the Net Zero report, as a sort of seminal one, I think. And I think it's going to be really influential in the run up to COP26, the climate summit this year. I just think, you know, it's worth as well saying, you know, what's interesting there is who it's coming from. This is a body that was set up in the 1970s in the wake of the oil crisis of the time. And, and the fact that they are saying, if you want to deal with climate change properly, you need to stop oil, gas production and coal, future coal mine, new coal mines 
now. <laughs> that that is quite exceptional. I mean, clearly they're saying they're not calling for that. They're saying this is what you need, and clearly it's not going to happen, even in Shell and BP's sort of you know greener plans because of um, the pandemic and their transition plans. Yeah, yeah they've those, still got significant investment. Yeah, they're, in not stop, they're not going to stop. They're not going to stop new oil and gas, but it does show the scale of the challenge. I think. Yeah, so there was a report out a few years ago that showed that we've already got enough oil and coal and, and gas in the pipeline to push us well past the two degrees uh, threshold. So it's not just that we need to stop exploration. We've got to leave some of the stuff we've already got in the ground. It's even, even more serious than that. Yeah, it's an old message, but a good one. Keep it in the ground is basically the message. Absolutely. Thanks to you both. And do check out Adam's report on methane in this week's magazine. That noise is the sci-fi alert, which sounds when there is a story in the magazine that has already been dreamt up in science fiction. Rowan, what is it this week? This is news about China's mission to Mars, which last week landed a rover on the planet. And only NASA so far has successfully landed a rover on Mars. Uh, Well, that's if you don't count a Soviet mission in 1971 that failed after two minutes there. So it's a really big deal and it's a real advance in Chinese spacefaring technology. Okay, so that means there are now three working rovers on Mars. Uh, Curiosity and Perseverance from NASA and Zurong from China. Yeah, and uh, the director of China's National Space Science Centre, Qi Wang, said a mission like this demonstrates China has the capability to explore the entire solar system. Uh, So, yeah, really, they're really ramping up the ambition there. Yeah. Um, So how does this new rover compare to Perseverance? So it's much smaller than Perseverance and it doesn't have as many uh, experiments on board and as much equipment. Um, But one cool thing it does have is it's got a better ground penetrating radar than Perseverance. So it's going to be able to scan beneath the surface of Mars down to 100 metres, which is 10 times further than uh, what Perseverance can do with its radar. And the hope is that then with that instrument, you'll be able to detect potential reserves of water ice underground. And as we all know, if and when you're on Mars and trying to establish a settlement, finding water is going to be absolutely critical. And the rovers aren't uh, aren't likely to bump into each other necessarily because they're all on different parts of the planet. Is that yeah. right? So yeah, yeah. Uh, Perseverance is on a complete different part, but Zurong is on the same vast plain on Mars that the the Viking Two probe landed on. But that's obviously you know dead and buried since 1976. It seems like there are a lot of options, but what is the sci-fi connection you're going to go with for this um, week? Yeah, well, I'm I'm going to go with something I haven't actually read. But <laughs> um, really interestingly, China's first, like the book that's called China's first book of science fiction is from 1933. And it's called City of Cats by Lao She. And that was set on Mars. And that was so the, the first science fiction from China. And, it, and this whole mission is really sparking more excitement in in science fiction from China and by uh, science fiction writers in China. So there's going to be a lot to look out for. Um, And one other thing to look out for is the the rover itself is going to start driving this weekend. So we're going to get more news from that soon. Let's take a short break. Time for a word from Jim Al-Khalili. Hi, I'm Jim Al-Khalili, interrupting your podcast to tell you about What I Believe, a podcast by Humanists UK, exploring the values, convictions and opinions of humanists in the public eye. 
Each week you'll get to listen to scientists like Richard Dawkins, Helen Chersky, Alice Roberts and me discussing our approaches to life. New episodes go live each Thursday and are available on all the usual places you get your podcasts. Curious? Subscribe and listen to the What I Believe podcast today. And now a word from our sponsor, Tiny Forest. Environmental challenges such as flooding, biodiversity loss and heat stress are becoming increasingly prevalent in our cities. A tiny solution has the power to explore these challenges and help transform our urban areas. It's called Tiny Forest. Find out why these tiny forests have the potential to be super powerful on the Earthwatch Europe website, earthwatch.org.uk forward slash new scientist. A tiny forest is a nature-based solution, a wild green space packed into an area the size of a tennis court. Although tiny, they bring all the benefits of a forest, connecting people with nature, helping to mitigate the impacts of climate change and providing a home for wildlife. A diverse mix of native trees is planted densely, encouraging rapid growth. In the UK, Earthwatch is pioneering tiny forests. We engage local communities in the planting and looking after of the forest so that we can assess the benefits tiny forests can bring to our cities and communities. Go to earthwatch.org.uk forward slash new scientist to find out how you can help Earthwatch Europe to transform our cities. Now, Rowan, you've got quite a delicate story to tell us about. Yeah, uh, there's there's no way of um, sort of dancing around this and saying it without a yuck factor. So I'm just going to plow straight on. The story is that scientists have found that pigs can breathe oxygen through the anus. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know uh, it's a bit odd because they don't have there's no lungs in a pig's bottom. Um, but what they've done, what this is the interesting thing is they've they've put a liquid, a very oxygen rich liquid into the pig's rectum and found that the oxygen would then dissolve out of the liquid and pass through the walls of the intestine and into the pig's blood. I mean, that is absolutely incredible. I yeah. just, um, why, why did would they you? do that? <laughs> yeah, so, well, the idea is if your lungs are damaged in some way, uh, it, it's, a, it's a way of getting oxygen into the blood. So it might be that you're in intensive care and you're on a, on a ventilator and that's when air is mechanically blown into the lungs and that can damage the lung tissue. Um, and so doctors are often trying to think of other ways to get oxygen into the blood in those situations. And it's the same for premature babies. Their lungs, you know, they're born full of fluid. And, you know, if they're premature, they're not properly developed. So it, it could be a very promising way of getting oxygen to premature babies too. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I guess we already know that nutrients can pass through the thin membrane of the intestines and into the bloodstream. And and that's what's already exploited medically um, when doctors give suppositories. So going through that thin membrane in the rectum. But why use pigs? And, And what is this liquid that's so sort of oxygen rich? Yeah, so pigs, I think that's just because they're a good, um, you know, mammal, similar size to us. Um, but the liquid is the really interesting thing. This is a pleurofluorocarbon, um, which is a class of compounds made from just carbon and fluorine. Um, and you get really interesting properties because the bond formed between those two elements is one of the strongest known in chemistry. So you get this really stable compound. Um, and the liquid it makes is super dense but has very low surface tension, which means if you get it in your lungs, it doesn't stick the alveoli together. Right. But in this instance, we're not talking about lungs. We're talking about the anus. <laughs> yeah. But but lots of people are working on ways to make a perfluorocarbon that you could breathe. Um, so you could imagine a liquid that you could actually breathe in and out. Um, and the, this pig work isn't going towards that. This is looking at ways of getting oxygen to humans through the intestines. 
but you know but there's been lots of interest for deep sea diving and for space travel to develop a breathable liquid because you'd be able to go really deep and then not have to decompress on the way back up and if you're immersed in gel and breathed liquid you could then withstand incredible acceleration and g-force that really high-speed space travel might put on you so you must, might remember that in the film The Abyss, they featured people breathing uh, perfluorocarbon. Um, so I'm looking forward to the remake with uh, this new method of, of getting <laughs> it into the body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're perhaps getting a bit ahead of ourselves. But um, and there was commentary in the journal that this was published in that said, you know, it is provocative and it's, it sounds quite startling when you first encounter it. But the author pointed out, you know, that the idea of fecal transplants was initially something people were totally repulsed by and resisted. But now it's quite an accepted thing to do in medicine. And Rowan, you mentioned the power of the carbon fluorine bond. And that actually reminds me, we've got a fantastic piece this week by science writer Phil Ball on how our understanding of atomic bonds, bonds between atoms and molecules, is being reinvented and revolutionized. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Now it's time for Lifeform of the Week, where we highlight an organism that's in the news. Rowan, what have we got this week? Uh, this week it's a species of mouse called the California mouse. Ah, oh, can it surf? <laughs> well, yeah, definitely it can surf. <laughs> um, and it also forms lifelong pair bonds. Uh, and that's very rare in mammals. Only 3 to 5% of all mammals are monogamous like this. Oh, that's lovely. A, a loyal mouse. Yeah, it's a loyal mouse. Um, and But the odd thing that they found is that in these uh, lifelong pairs, some, some, well, sometimes something tragic happens and one of them dies. Um, and it turns out that female mice take longer to get over the loss of their partner than male mice. So the females are slower to then begin a, a sexual relationship with a new partner. And do the researchers know why that is? They think it might be because the the females become sceptical then that a new male will stick around and, and help and help them and look after any new pups that are born. Yeah, listening to this story, it's hard not to think immediately of relationships between men and women. <laughs> yeah, it really is. <laughs> um, the scientist working on this species speculates that the female mouse needs that extra paternal component, a male who will be there and will actively engage in the successful rearing of offspring. But what about a bereaved male mouse? Well, bereaved male mice probably don't care because they don't get involved so much in the rearing of pups. Um, you know, females have to be pregnant and then nurse the pups. So they put a lot more into it, a lot more investment. And it, so it pays them to be more cautious in choosing a father. Yeah, I mean, it is almost impossible not to anthropomorphize this story now. Yeah, I know, I know. Um, I should say it's uh, that's me using words like tragic and bereaved. The scientists themselves are very careful not to go in lapse into that territory, but it's hard not to for us. Now, coronavirus news. Michael, you've been looking into how vaccines are being distributed around the world. Yes, to start with the good news, around 720 million people have now had at least one vaccine dose. So to develop vaccines from scratch and get them into so many arms so quickly is just completely unprecedented. I'm sensing there's a but coming. Indeed. The but is that there are 8 billion people in the world, which means just 9% have had at least one vaccine dose. And there are now huge disparities between countries, with hardly anyone vaccinated in less wealthy countries. And the reality is this pandemic is far from over. Yes, it could still get worse before it gets better. We've seen more dangerous variants emerging, 
much as the world has reached pandemic fatigue and we've seen more humanitarian crises like the ones in India. So what is the best way of, of using the vaccine doses that we have? Well, all the experts I spoke to think we should be focusing on the people who are most vulnerable and those in most urgent need, that is, people in countries with serious outbreaks. But that's just not happening, is it? No, unfortunately, far from it. So rich countries are focused on vaccinating their entire populations as quickly as possible, rather than sharing vaccines via the global vaccination scheme called COVAX, once they've vaccinated the most vulnerable. I mean, that's completely understandable because we all want this nightmare to end as soon as possible. But I think we, we should not be under any illusions. Doing this means that globally, more people are going to die. And I imagine there's more bad news still. Yep. So I think what really shocked me writing this story is it, that some rich countries are now accumulating stockpiles of unused doses. As the pace of vaccination has slowed in the US, for instance, it's accumulated 70 million doses that are just sitting on shelves unused. So for comparison, the International Scheme for Distributing Vaccines Fairly, COVAX, has only distributed 65 million doses to all the countries in the scheme so far. So what that means is the US alone has more unused doses sitting on shelves than the entire global scheme. But the US is taking some steps to address this, right? That's right. So on Monday, finally, President Biden announced that the US would start sharing some of these excess doses by the end of June. But I think the US could be doing much more, given how many it's got. And Biden didn't say how these doses will be shared either. As we've said a lot, getting the whole world vaccinated is the best, really only way to reduce the risk of more dangerous variants emerging, which is why rich countries should be helping pay for global vaccination. Absolutely. So around another 45 billion or so is needed to vaccinate most adults around the world. That might sound like a vast amount, but if you compare it to the cost of the pandemic, which is estimated at five to ten trillion dollars, it's actually pretty small. And if we see another variant that's even better at evading existing vaccines, that, that, that alone could cost us more than 45 billion, quite apart from the human toll it takes. So we need a billionaire, really, to to stump up this money and like 45 billion i mean i'm serious like yeah but like imagine a billionaire like this there's quite a few who have 45 billion they could single-handedly vaccinate the the world and imagine the the reputational (laughs) salvation they would get for that now that's all for this week thanks to our guests adam fauna and michael lepage and thanks to you for listening Yes, thank you, everyone. And we didn't mention the cover feature this week, which is an amazing piece by science writer Caroline Williams on how the way that you move can affect the way that you think. Also, remember to get that free moon jigsaw puzzle with your subscription offer at newscientist.com slash puzzle. See you next week. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by Oli Guillou Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.